This episode is brought to you by VinSmart. Need help with your recall campaigns? DMVs, government agencies, fleet owners can learn more by visiting vinsmart.com slash businesses or call 1-888-950-9550. Welcome to AmbaCast, bringing news, information, and expertise to the Amva community. Here's your host, Ian Grossman. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the AmbaCast. This week, we are talking to one of this year's recipients of our Lifetime Achievement Award for Lifetime Achievement in Highway Safety, more specifically, Lifetime Achievement in Highway Safety for the Law Enforcement category, Colonel Matt Langer who is the Chief of the State Patrol with the Minnesota State Patrol. Colonel, welcome to your first appearance on the AmbaCast. Hey, thank you for having me. It's uh, an honor to be part of the program. So this award is given for lifetime achievement. Um, So we like to talk to folks about their career and their lifetime, though I do have to say out the gate, you're probably edging on the younger recipients for a lifetime achievement award. It's, you know, I've told people that um, kind of like a vehicle, I might not be as old as some, but I have a lot of miles on <laughs> kind of what I what I like to say. But I've been um, a state trooper for 22 and some years. And before that, I was an explorer, which is a volunteer position uh, with the Minnesota State Patrol. So I've been around a long time um, and I've really been engaged with traffic safety issues for the, the, my entire career. That said, it is a little odd to get a lifetime achievement award when I don't feel like I'm as close to the end of my life. <laughs> of your career, yeah. or let alone <laughs> lifetime. Right. Yeah. Well, let's, let's, so take me back there. Um, are you a Minnesota native? I am. Yep. Live in Minnesota my whole life. And so you uh, started with the patrol in 99, but I guess the, the volunteer role that you mentioned was prior to that? Correct. Yeah, I was an explorer for about four years before uh, becoming a trooper. And is that something, is that a program for, for college students recently out of college? What's the, how does that work? It's a program uh, basically for high school kids and then up to yeah. early college who have an yeah. interest in law enforcement to kind of get involved and, and learn more about the, the career with an agency. So how does a teenage Matt Langer how does that hit, hit his radar that he wants to be involved in law enforcement? So I, I had an interest in policing and I did a couple of ride alongs, but then actually uh, my father worked with a lady whose son-in-law was a state trooper. And so I got to meet him and uh, went on a ride along with him and then really just kind of solidified that uh, a specific niche within policing that I had an interest in was, was the state patrol. And crash reconstruction and some things that are specific to traffic safety. So uh, that was kind of what did it for me was that experience and getting to know that person. What was it at, at an early age? Even I would imagine a lot of uh, young individuals looking at law enforcement and even being tracked to a state state patrol, the idea of crash reconstruction, that's a very specific niche. So what, what drew you to that early on? The challenge of it, um, I like, you know, I, I was never like math didn't like come easy to me, but I enjoyed it and I enjoy like figuring things out. I enjoy solving problems. I enjoy um, solving things and making things uh, make sense. And so the whole concept of putting that together, figuring out what happened with the crash, why it happened, and then holding anyone accountable and learning about it, not to mention helping victims, families understand uh, what happened to their loved one. I think that was all together a really um, 
a system of things that I really enjoyed and I liked. Uh, even though it's working through tragedies and sad circumstances, I enjoyed going to a scene, figuring out what to do, making it better, cleaning it up, and then later on figuring out exactly why that crash occurred. And so you start as a volunteer, you realize you like this, you, uh, I assume, go to the academy and become a, a trooper in, in Minnesota. What, what's those early years of being a trooper, trooper like for you? Well, it's, it was everything I dreamed of. Um, mm. At that point, I, I worked downtown St. Paul, which is a, an mm. urban area in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And, um, just enjoyed going out and working hard, uh, having the, the freedom to go do this job and to just work as hard as I could at, at uh, preventing crashes and saving lives. And then I think over the course of time, you start to understand the correlation between your work and preventing fatal crashes, maybe more than just in the beginning. Mm-hmm. I found that, you know, as I've gone along in the career, you know, every, every impaired driver that you bring to jail is potentially one life saved. And uh, at the time you're just catching drunk drivers or, right. or drug impaired drivers. But as time goes on, I've really um, understood the correlation there and that that one drunk driver that you arrest and, and book could save the life of someone down the road. And so yeah. uh, that to me has become more clear with time. But yeah, originally I'd go out, have, have fun, work really hard, treat people right and uh, make a difference. And where do things start to shift in terms of being that trooper who's doing that day in and day out? And then somewhere along the way, a supervisor, a leader starts to say, okay, now it's time for you to grow within the patrol and take on more responsibilities, grow up the, go up the chain and, um, you know, grow into a leadership role, many stops along the way to Colonel, but how does that first get introduced into your career path that, okay, this is, there's something more here even than just stopping those drivers and being a, you know, being a trooper day in and day out, but this is now a, a career path where I can take on more responsibility. Yeah, I did crash reconstruction for uh, almost four years full time. And then I don't know if I ever really set out to get promoted. I certainly didn't join the patrol with the goal of becoming the chief at all. Um, But I was pursuing a master's degree in public and nonprofit administration. I enjoyed that. And so it just it made sense to to take the test to get promoted. And I was fortunate to get promoted um, to lieutenant, which is the first line supervisor rank in our organization and ran our fleet and asset management um, sort of. Um, all of the, from guns to squad cars, to uniforms and everything in between uh, was what I had the responsibility to oversee. And I really enjoyed that. How long did you stay in that role for? I did that for um, a couple of years until I migrated into a public information officer role. Uh, And I I really enjoyed that also. Um, Loved the opportunity to talk about the state patrol, to talk about Mm -hmm. traffic safety, to try to educate and convince people that that we can help them get mm-hmm. from it safer um, if they would just listen to like our simple advice and then also just really liked promoting what the state patrol does and what we have to offer and and, and what the men and women of the organization do on a daily basis to make our state safer mm-hmm. and so as you continue through that career path um, eventually you become the the deputy, the number two, if you will, in the, in the patrol. And I imagine at that point you go, okay, I can, I see where this path is going. And uh, eventually the phone rings and you're asked to take on the, the role as the chief. Um, like you said, at the outset, you never started with 
that in mind as an end game. But how did how does one? I mean, that's a big call that somebody gets to take on that role. How did that happen for you? Well, it's kind of interesting. So I, I was the acting, I'm sorry, the lieutenant colonel, the number two for about three yeah. years. And then I was the acting chief for about 10 months. And um, it was, I remember the day that I got a, a phone call from the commissioner at the time. And, and she said, can you come upstairs? I want to talk. And I took the elevator upstairs and I thought, well, this is it. Um, either, you know, she, she wants me to have the job or she'll choose to to have a process, but you know, it was, it was time to have a, a appointed Colonel. And, and she asked me um, to take the job and, and I accepted. So it was a powerful moment. Um, and I remember telling her, uh, cause she said, what are you thinking? And I said, I uh, have complete respect for the responsibility of the job. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't come easy to think that, that you're responsible for all that happens within the organization. And, so I said that's the one thing that kind of, kind of kicks me a little bit is just realizing that it's a it's a it's a really significant honor and there's a lot that comes with it. But that ultimate responsibility to make sure we're doing the right things, and doing our job the right way is really critical. Now, certainly being in the role you're in, there's a tremendous amount of administration and personnel management and all those things that come up with leadership. How have you been able to balance that while keeping a more direct line and a connection to what started you out and what you said was so rewarding, which was getting that drunk driver off the road, getting that, you know, a speeder to not speed to save those lives. How have you been able to manage that in this executive role? Well, I think that, you know, ultimately it's, it's through growth and transition. And I have gotten to the point where I mean, troopers can run circles around me, stopping cars and arresting impaired drivers. They're good at it. I'm not good at it anymore. I'm, I readily admit that, you know, versus <laughs> years ago. But I think for me, the growth and the trans and the transition is I get tremendous satisfaction from helping and supporting and hiring and training and then seeing the new troopers and the old troopers go out there and do the job. Um, I get tremendous satisfaction out of that as watching them grow into that role and, and assume that responsibility is really fun um, to see. So I still have my uh, hands in it. I still see it on a daily basis. I'm not the one out there doing it, but I, I really try to stay connected and make sure that I hear from them and understand how, how they're um, thinking and what they're feeling and how things are going and what we can do to help them do their job better. You know, you were uh, moving through the ranks of uh, the patrol there during a time when Minnesota, as a as a state, was on the front edge of really embracing the idea of zero deaths as the only acceptable goal. There was those of us that have been around the conversation remember the times where there was a lot of debates around is zero an appropriate goal and is that reasonable? And I remember you know folks from Minnesota who were among the early vocal proponents of that, that type of vision. Um, did you have the opportunity to be, to be part of those conversations back then and be part of the, the state highway planning around, around the, the goal of zero? You know, yes. Um, the Toward Zero Death Program in Minnesota has, has strong roots. And, you know, yeah. we, we say that, you know, we've asked people sometimes like, so how many deaths should we have? Right. Mm-hmm. And the only answer is zero. Like, how, how do you say, well, let's have 50, you know, or 300 or 400 or 4,000, depending on your state. But 
you know, one of the things I was doing during crash reconstruction work was we were tracking every single through the median head on crash in the metro area. And that was really significant for us because we had a lot of problems with cars going through the median and on a freeway, a controlled access freeway and hitting another vehicle head on. We were tracking those specifically because our Department of Transportation had a commissioner or someone in the commissioner's office that wanted to do something about that. We tracked the data and now cable median guardrails are normal across the entire state of Minnesota. And we've nearly eliminated that type of fatal crash. So for me, it was recognizing we're going to these fatal crashes. We see this problem, we're tracking it. And the solution that sometimes can be somewhat controversial is implemented. And years later, that crash, that type of crash just isn't as significant at all as it used to be because there was the concerted effort between enforcement and engineering under the towards zero death umbrella to figure out how to do this better. Yeah. You know, you mentioned um, with moving towards uh, zero deaths, one of the places that, you know, has contributed to the larger conversation around the country is the University of Minnesota and a lot of the research being done there. And I know that you've worked closely with them and really being able to make data available and leveraging data and really kind of ties back to you, I guess, your roots around that crash reconstruction and the engineering behind it. Tell us a little bit about your work with the university. We're blessed to have the University of Minnesota and more specifically the Center for Transportation Studies, which is part of what was once the Roadway Safety Institute. And I've gotten to know some of those folks that that are there, and I think they're great. And they think differently. Um, They see problems from a different perspective than the police or even engineers. They have a research uh, mind. And so we've I've just really enjoyed their work, whether it was engaging them to redesign our crash report to be more user friendly for the officers and then actually collect better data or most recently helping engage uh, their work on police pursuits that are really a significant problem on our roads right Mm now. And just engaging it from a research perspective, let's figure out what is going on. Because uh, oftentimes we think we have it all figured out and we connect the dots. But a true research perspective, I think, can help us. And I, I wish that there was more of it in the policing profession and in the traffic safety world, because we have lots of problems that could uh, that we could unleash researchers yeah. to tackle. You, know, you mentioned police pursuits and it jumped out at me because in whoever nominated you, um, one of the many accomplishments that you've had that they called out as, you know, to summarize your qualifications was the work you did to revisit your your policy on pursuits and revising it and updating it. Will you speak a little bit to, to that work? Yeah, we have um, been plagued with an exponential growth in police pursuits in Minnesota, similar to other states. And uh, a few years ago, on the heels of some really tough cases, Um, We took a hard look at our policy and really came at it from a a new perspective of saying, how do we do this? How do we do police pursuits in a way that is ultimately as safe as possible? And so where do we have restrictions? Where do we have discretion? Where do we have supervisors? And we worked hard. For a year, we brought people into into a room with differing views, and we worked toward a common goal of having a revised refreshed, reframed policy. Uh, and then we set into training it differently. And we, we put a different training curriculum together than anything we've ever done before to really hone in on, you, have, you can have a policy, but if people don't understand it and don't apply it, it doesn't matter. 
And so we worked really hard over the course of a year to implement that in and then train it and make sure that it's part of our culture and then make sure that we're always keeping an eye on what that policy says and what's working and what's not. So I think, you know, for me as sort of a organizational development kind of um, uh, geek, uh, it was an opportunity to put into practice, you know, that side of my life that I love so much from the educational academic world. Uh, on organizational change, organizational development, and and leadership to see how you can do this the right way and bring people along if you're willing to put in the effort and spend the time to get where you want to go. Mm-hmm. And what other types of initiatives like that have you been able to undertake uh, as as colonel to move the move the agency forward and bring some of the changes that you know. Imagine growing up in the agency, there's always those things, you know, well, if I was in, if I was the person in charge, I would love to do this. And then you actually get the chance to do it. Yeah. So there's things that I just really enjoy about the job. I like making some equipment changes. You know, when we can, we got high visibility yellow jackets years ago, we worked with a vendor who listened to us and figured out how to help solve our problem. And uh, we were trying to make the high visibility jacket a culturally normal thing in our organization. Mm-hmm. But the, but the garment wasn't there. Like nobody wanted to wear what we had. Mm. But we actually were able to develop one with a vendor. And uh, it's totally, absolutely normal culture for Minnesota State Troopers to be wearing a yellow jacket on traffic stops, at crash scenes, certainly during the winter months. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's been fun to see. Another example more recently is on the recruitment front. Um, we've, we still would like to see more diversity in our trooper ranks and, and would like to see more women join our ranks. Uh, but we've hired some really fantastic talent in the last few years, and they come at us with ideas for how to recruit talent like them. And so we have like one young, uh, younger, newer trooper. She's not all that young, but she's new to us, came from a social work background. And she's providing her input on how to create recruitment specific to her audience, specific to her demographic. Mm-hmm. And I, I just am like, I love it that she's bringing the ideas forward. And we're able to execute it and put uh, recruitment material out there that's sort of ginned up from the exact one of the exact audiences that we're really going after to recruit. So um, I'm, you know, you look at my personality profile. I like to execute things. I like to do things, mm-hmm. uh, solve problems. So it's fun when we can make those changes. We're on the brink of body worn cameras right now. Um, yeah. We're we're moving in that direction. We have a contract signed, and so. That'll be probably about a year-long deployment for us as an organization, but it's going to be a huge step in the right direction. And do you think that's that's going to be a welcome culture change, or do you think, from your organization development, organizational management perspective, you're you are recognizing kind of what you're going to have to do to shift the culture? Yeah, great question. They want body-worn cameras. The troopers want them. Um, they've been wanting them for a while, so we now have the funding and the ability to move forward on it. So. We've had squad video systems in nearly every squad car for 20 years. Mm-hmm. So it's not new for us. And the body worn camera will augment the squad video and it'll be a good thing for us. Great. You know, and, you know, we talk about the culture. I think um, our, our audience would uh, would probably say we were skirting around it if I didn't ask the obvious, which is that it's been a challenging year in law enforcement and the culture and the environment. I think we all know it's probably tenfold in your state. But, you know, without getting into, you know, everything that's gone on over the past year, year and a half, just from a leadership and organizational management 
um, how you've been able to tackle that and still guide your, your troopers, you know, to, to keep their eye on the ball and to keep doing what matters, which is keeping the road safe. Yeah, that's a, that's a daily struggle. Um, yeah. It's been tough. Um, I've said, you know, the profession of policing or law enforcement, regardless of where you are, but certainly in Minnesota, you know, we've gotten a lot of criticism that the profession deserves and we've gotten a lot of criticism that we don't, uh, mm-hmm. but it's made it difficult. And uh, especially as we try to improve and deliver in a way that the community wants us to deliver and in a way that's acceptable. Um, the one thing that I, I keep, I come back to the fundamentals for us. And uh, I believe in our core values. We talk about them often, respect, integrity, courage, honor, and excellence. The day we deviate from those core values is the day where we get in trouble. And so we focus on those core values. And then I encourage people to get their time off, to take deep breaths, to practice, you know, what I preach about taking care of themselves. And then at the end of the day, they have to trust their own behavior. They have to trust their own actions and they have to put their best foot forward. And that's all we can do in this moment is to keep going. But the public expects us that in the traffic safety world, they certainly expect us with the fatal crash numbers, the way that they are and the speeds that are so out of control. Um, but it, it's been tough. It'll continue to be tough. And in the end, uh, better days are ahead. And yeah. only if we embrace some of the challenges and listen to that criticism and figure out what to do with it. Sometimes it's hard not to be defensive. But I don't know that being defensive is beneficial at all. And, and above all else, it certainly doesn't help to get negative. It certainly doesn't help to get negative. Um, it doesn't do anything other than, um, I, as I sometimes say, it gets you on blood pressure medication sooner than maybe nature <laughs> had intended anyway. Uh, that's the only thing it's going to do. But negativity doesn't solve problems. Yeah. So somehow lifting that positivity up and embracing the good things along the way, I think, is really important. And you mentioned in there, and I appreciate your honesty and openness to, to talk about that. You mentioned, though, particularly with highway safety, with the numbers, they're starting to go in the wrong direction again. Speed is way out of control. Uh, what are you going to what do you do? What can you do, at least in, in Minnesota? Or what can we do as a community um, to try to double down and, and retackle it? It seems, though, the, the numbers are going back up and yet it's not for new and different reasons it's the same reasons we've been fighting for decades. Without a doubt, it's speeding, it's impairment, it's distraction, and it's lack of seatbelt use. That's it. You know, that it's four simple things. Um, and that's what the data shows no matter what country or state you're in. Um, and so certainly COVID led to a dramatic decrease in congestion and vehicle miles traveled. We thought, well, this will be incredible. We might see the lowest number of fatalities we've ever seen And then it did exactly the opposite because we saw speeds just shoot through the roof and we saw risky driving behavior just increase exponentially at the same time that law enforcement and the enforcement practices of policing and law enforcement was dropping and educational opportunity was dropping due to COVID and then civil unrest and a lot of societal issues. So I think we've just had a perfect storm of all of the worst things combining. And one of the byproducts of those things is, is this exponential growth in traffic fatalities where we're really, we're losing 20 years of progress mm-hmm. in the course of 18 months. And that's really troubling uh, when you think about the impact to, to communities and impact to families, impact to those first responders that show up at those scenes. Um, we've got to figure out how to get that back on track and to get speeds back 
if they were ever control uh, under control, I don't know if I'd say that, but at least back to some degree of reasonableness. And uh, we've just seen some really horrific driving behaviors, and that and the end result is a lot of fatalities. Yeah. And so, what else about the future of traffic safety? What do you think are going to be some of the emerging areas in addition to the evergreen ones? that we have to tackle, speeding, belt use, impairment. Uh, any new trends that uh, someone who is so tied into the traffic safety world that really uh, stick out for you as something that our community needs to keep our eye on? Well, I think we have to figure out, uh, once again, what the purpose of traffic enforcement is. There's a lot mm-hmm. of conversation in certain communities about disparate impact and about racial profiling and mm-hmm. about uh, pretextual traffic stops. So I, I I hope we have further conversation about why we do traffic enforcement anyway, mm-hmm. and to clarify that because over the course of time it has shifted. Uh, certainly, I'm excited and then also nervous about the recruitment aspects of law enforcement because we need people to come in that want to do the job and then want to do traffic safety. Um, and it's not every agency's primary mission, but as staffing numbers yeah. drop in a lot of agencies, traffic enforcement goes by the wayside, and so that gives me some concern. On the technology front, you know, I'm eager to see some of the impacts of the technology related to automated enforcement and kind of grappling with the controversies that come with automated enforcement. But there's certainly uh, potential for a role, especially depending on on your state and your community. Uh, Really excited about things like electronic driver's licenses, just Mm -hmm. things that we have taken for granted for so long to have that plastic card in your wallet and then recognizing that if you most people especially generationally they don't want a plastic card in their wallet that's why they've got uh their credit card in their smartphone and frankly there's a lot of advantages to not having a plastic card and seeing some of the states adopt that technology and i know amba's been leading on trying to ensure consistency on those products so that we we don't end up with a patchwork uh, like Mm -hmm. we do on most everything else and so there's advantages to law enforcement too on some of those technological uh, moves. So there's a lot going in the future um, and and a lot to be excited about related to traffic safety and technology and how it can do a better job of of making our roads safer. And, you know, you mentioned the fact that we're doing that work on uh, mobile driver's license. I'm curious, you know, your other interaction with AMVA over the years, you know, it's an AMVA podcast, so I got to try to make it a little bit of an AMVA commercial. You know, how has your involvement, engagement with AMVA and the AMVA community contributed to, you know, your career growth or you being more effective in the roles you've been in? So, uh, you know, our connection to AMVA is Brian Ursino mm-hmm. uh, because of his, you know, role with state and provincial policing with his former career as retiring as lieutenant colonel at the Washington State Patrol. So he's like just a day-to-day resource. Hey, Brian, what's going on with X? And he'll get the answer and and he'll run it down really quickly. Uh, Within the Minnesota, our Department of Public Safety, Driver and Vehicle Services is a sister division to the Minnesota State Patrol. Matter of fact, they're right across the hall. And I know that they interface a lot with AMBA on on a a variety of issues. Uh, Our Commercial Motor Vehicle Division engages in ways that are specific to their work. And so... Um, I haven't you know, worked directly with AMBA on a lot of projects, but I'm well aware of all the work that goes uh, with AMBA and hits all the different aspects of the Minnesota State Patrol, the motoring public, yep. the greater you know, network of transportation issues. So uh, I think it's a strong organization that is mission focused on trying to, trying to keep things going in the right direction and 
that for us means that it works for law enforcement, but for the greater good means that it works for the consumers of the services that come from driver and vehicle services and registration and yep. and uh, the policing issues that come with traffic safety. So you mentioned earlier that one of your key pieces of advice to uh, everyone in your organization is make sure you take your time off and catch your breath. Are you good at following your own advice? Are you able to get away? And, you know, what is uh, what is the lifetime award winner do with his free time? Yeah, I'm not as good as I would like to be (laughs) on that on that front. Um, Sometimes it just is not within my control. And so I just have to embrace it uh, the best that I can. But I really enjoy spending time with my family. We enjoy getting up north in Minnesota. Uh, in Wisconsin on weekends. We like our trips when we can get away. Mm-hmm. Um, so those are the things that we like to do. Uh, but I've got, yeah, two teenage girls. So we're busy with sports oh boy. Yeah. and uh, a lot of stuff going on, but it's, it's all good. That's great. That's great. Well, Colonel, I really appreciate you uh, taking some time out of your day to talk to us, share a little bit about your career and the topics that are on, on your mind. Uh, it was a great uh, honor for us to be able to present you with the award. Um, as well as to share that that touching video of the tradition that you embraced from a previous colleague to uh, send notes and letters to those families that um, have had that horrible, worst tragedy happen of losing a loved one, so all too often a child um, in a in a in a tragic crash. Um, hopefully, I hope that you know you don't have to write those as often as you do. Yeah, that would be my hope as well. Um, it's a tr- it's just really a tremendous honor to receive this award. Um, it just means a lot to me. I never saw it coming. I never knew that my staff had put me in for it. Um, if they'd have asked, I would have told them, knock it off. Um, don't do that. But um, it means a lot to me, and I'm really thankful for it. And, and uh, it's, it's, a, it's really powerful for me to receive the award. So I, I thank AMBA and the people that have helped me get where I am and support me. And, and uh, we, it's a team effort. Absolutely. And quite a testament to you that your staff thinks so highly of you that they would want to nominate you for, for the award. So congratulations, not only on what you've done for traffic safety, but to lead an organization that thinks that highly of its leader. Um, you really can't, can't find a better compliment than that. I appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. Well, to all of you out there, thanks for listening in and learning more about, about the Colonel, our Lifetime Achievement Award winner. I want to thank our producers, Claire Jeffrey and Chelsea Hadwin. And until next time, everyone, thanks for tuning into the Ambicast. Stay well, everyone. Thank you for joining us for Ambicast, hosted by Ian Grossman, produced by Claire Jeffrey. Music by Gibson Arthur. This episode was brought to you by Recall Buzz, powered by VinSmart. Visit us at amvacast.podbean.com and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, and Spotify.